Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. My name is Wayne Vondell. I'm a clinical nurse consultant in emergency at Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney, New South Wales. Uh, I'm also the Associate Executive Director for the College of Emergency Nursing Australasia, and I also chair the Professional Standards Committee. Many of our listeners are going to be familiar with you from pretty much one of many of your roles in the emergency nursing world. Um, they may have studied you, uh, you know, used your chapters when they're studying for their postgrad exams um, uh, You that you authored in emergency and trauma care. Sometimes people just call that Curtis. Um, they may have seen you speak at one of the many conferences around emergency care or even cited you in, their, in one of their papers or they've just worked alongside you in the ED. Um, I've only mentioned a tiny little bit, but with all of this going on, can you tell us about everything, uh, how everything kind of fits together and how you manage your time with all of that? So I was reflecting on a little bit of this today, preparing for this interview, thinking, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I cram in. But um, I suppose my working day traditionally is broken down into 45 minute slots. So I know that I can be productive in those sort of aspects. And I look at jobs or tasks or, or areas of interest or projects that I want to be involved in. And I look at them in, in through that lens of 45 minutes. Uh, but in saying that, not everything you know gets done. And it's taught me a lot it's taught me a lot about myself in terms of planning. Um, I achieve rough two or three major projects a year because you need time either side. Um, I also uh, supervise and uh, share students with their work in doing, doing their masters of emergency nursing or their nurse practitioner masters. Um, and those things are a part of my daily life. Um, I would be lying if I said I got everything done during my business hours. Um, I don't. I'm up at five o'clock in the morning. I'm in the office by six and I've done most of my um, work by nine. Um, and then, of course, you know, then the emails come in. So I've stretched my day a little bit. And I think most of us have done that in some way, shape or form. Um, during my first master's, um, we had three children and, you know, wanting to be a very present and active father, Trying to balance that uh, taught me again a lot about um, time thieves, about things that do take away valuable, precious time. So I have to schedule and I have to schedule really hard to make sure that I give my quality time uh, to projects, to my family and to students that I'm supporting. Um, but yes, the, even COVID has taught me a lot about um, the limits that I even I face in trying to get and trying to be productive. Um, Work has ground to a halt a little whilst you're on the tools on the shop floor. Um, but even then, um, we still find time to support the college activities, to support craft groups, uh, to be present for national bodies of work to ensure that emergency nursing um, is represented and is considered in the development and articulations of policy, which would impact on us as well as the resources that were provided. Um, so yeah, so I think I've committed the great sin of working before and after my working hours to fit everything in. Um, but using opportunities like online, um, catching up with students for 45 minutes, it can actually save a lot of people a lot of frustration. So I do allow a little bit of flexibility to get things done. 
I'm interested in that 45 minute breaking things down into 45 <clears throat> minutes. That's um, that's something that I've struggled with heaps. Um, I will set aside an hour, maybe uh for this and then another hour for that and that just gets pushed um and uh, unfortunately the 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 things that get that get pushed to the side are usually the things that i need to prioritize for myself um and you tend to prioritize stuff for others you mentioned there um you usually try to output two major projects per year um Hmm. what would you classify as a major project um, so this might be a system redesign. It might be a systematic review. It's something that is definitely going to take a series of days or weeks to get started and to actually start thinking about how we're going to communicate this project. Um, so typically, for example, if I'm um, doing a systematic literature review, I know that's going to take me four to six months to do. These things don't just happen overnight. Um, and writing um is an art it's a craft it's a painful one um because you know you're trying to get the message as clear as possible um i've also done things in such as you know organizing education events um but again these things take time i think uh productivity bias has has been sat on my left shoulder everything that i've done since i've been part of the australian emergency nursing uh, sort of community um you know we sit there and we think oh i can knock that out in a day or so but when you start and you see the depth and you see the time slipping away, I think you first need to be honest with yourself. And I've worked out that 45 minutes is my peak. Um, and then I start to break things down. Um, so I, I get to that end and I'm not so frustrated. But yeah, two to three major projects uh, a year. Um, that also then gives me more flexibility and freedom to be available for people who need small, smaller uh, aliquots of time to uh, get some assistance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think we all think we're a lot uh, better and quicker and more productive than we are. Just like when you get a quote from a from a labourer about doing some work around your house, and they say, "Yeah, yeah, it'll be done in a month," and then four months later, it's still happening. And we all do it. We all think that, "Oh, yeah, that we could do that in an hour or two. That's 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 amazing." You also mentioned there about um, uh, national statements and. Uh, national working groups um you're currently representing cena and the emergent and emergency nursing as part of the national COVID 19 evidence task force guideline leadership group there's those of us in cena get updates about this the task force um pretty much every week and have some idea what's going on there for the rest of those who don't could you tell us about the task force and its role So the task force role uh, primarily is to engage peak professional bodies uh, across Australia. And it's about focusing on um, members that are clinically active and to coordinate the data coming from studies being produced globally. Now, obviously, COVID-19 has been a tragic um, infection that's caused devastation uh, globally and Australia has by far been quite lucky in how it has managed uh, the impact of this disease. However, um, one of the first areas that we look for is what's the evidence? How do we um, keep our staff safe? How do we keep patients safe? How do we keep those people in communities safe that we don't want to be introduced or exposed to this disease? Um, obviously, when this uh, first got announced uh, back in November, December of 2019, it did catch a lot lot of people unawares um, people were trying to publish evidence they were trying to publish findings and obviously when 
time is of the essence, the credibility and the clarity of which, by which that's, those findings come about can be questionable. So this peak group um, looked at doing evidence synthesis and evidence surveillance um, to date the various uh, working groups, and there's pediatric geriatricians, there's infection prevention control, there's a whole host of them that Cena has either got representation on the executive committee, which is uh, Dr. Julie Morfitt, there's myself on the guide, guideline leadership group, and then there's various seniors members on the subspeciality areas. And the one that we've recently looked at is infection prevention control and aged care um, as a vulnerable population group. But to date, um, we have reviewed over 30,000 studies, 2,100 RCTs, 2,600 uh, systematic reviews, and 120 published RCTs. Now, all of this evidence has to be crunched and it has to be analysed and it has to be communicated um, in a real-time fashion. So clinicians making bedside decisions about how do we um, modify the disease's impact on this patient, whether they're mild, moderate, or severe, what is the best evidence? That is the role of the COVID-19 Evidence Task Force, is to bring that to people's fingertips. Um, Australia has led the way in producing um, what they call living documents, and it's a great way to work, especially as the evidence is continues to be um, outputted into the world. We have seen studies that have been less than credible that we've had to give some caution around because they've recommended certain treatments that are uh, gradually being seen not to be value add to the, uh, not not to sort of you know, value add to the patient's care. Um, the membership of each of these levels as working parties is also unique. It's absolutely balanced. There's all the craft groups there, uh, physicians, nurses, occupational therapists, social workers, consumer representatives, and there's a lovely balance of genders on these working groups as well because healthcare affects everyone and it affects every one of those roles from the street side, curbside paramedic all the way through to a social worker who is supporting a bereaving family and how they're meant to express their religious practices in a COVID safe way. Um, so I've been on, on board now for just over six months um, and I've been thoroughly impressed with the amount of evidence that has been synthesized. Um, yes, we've published in the last month the uh, basic life support algorithm uh, modified for um, uh, suspected COVID-19 infected patients. And that has taken a lot of careful consideration. We've had to obviously involve multiple craft groups, from uh, anaesthetists to emergency clinicians of all types and pre-hospital uh, professionals to get the balance of safety right. In uh, contrast as well, and, uh, and more importantly, um, without uh, decreasing patient uh, positive outcomes, um, because we've just got to try and maintain that balance. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, you, you mentioned a hell of a lot of number crunching and a lot of papers reviewed there. Just just so people know, I think at the moment the task force is represented for, by more than thirty peak bodies from around Australasia. Yes. Is that yeah, yeah? So uh, no 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 main feat in coordinating all of those people um, and, and getting outputs there. No, it, it, there have been challenges. I mean, trying to keep a, a group, whatever that group is, balanced with a equal rep, uh, voice of all those that would be impacted 
uh, by decisions and guidelines has been a very challenging but rewarding process. And to see the leadership team take that on with a very clear message that we all have a part to play in this. Um, and some guidelines have taken a little while to come through because there will be naturally um, differences of opinion and views. And that has also, um, you know, important to incorporate. Thanks for that. I've got a, I've got a kind of a double-barreled um, question, I guess, Wayne. In as your role as a uh, clinical nurse consultant, I was wondering, for starters, if you could just maybe talk about what that entails, what a what the what a clinical nurse consultant role is, because I've worked in some organisations that don't have them, and then. On further, like expanding on that, I'm, I'm assuming that part of your role is about translation of guidelines into practice and making sure that there's best evidence-based care. You were talking about as part of that, your role on the task force is the, the development of these living guidelines and these living documents. Um, so the second part is, can you tell us about your experience of translating these living guidelines into, into practice? So the role of the clinical nurse consultant is a senior leadership role. It is an individual who has extensive clinical and academic preparation to design and advise on specialty practice. So mine is emergency uh, nursing to coordinate and where needed improve and restructure service access. So again, looking at adjunct services to emergency care, looking at integrated care units or um, other streams or services. It's also to have a specialty education and research uh, focus. So again, looking at, um, well, as nursing has increasingly shown us, it's a complicated, complex specialty thing. It's not um, your pre-registration training, you know, gets you so far, but then there is this specialty layer that needs to be delivered. And the CNCs are responsible for ensuring that the practice at the bedside reflects the best possible standards of that specialty and the individuals delivering that care are trained and appropriately uh, developed um, so that care can be transmitted safely. The other side, we do have a slight management role, but this is more again about resource management within the department. Um, I've had the pleasure of being a CNC now for over five years. And prior to that, I was a nurse educator. Um, so bringing those two things together has really helped um, in how we adapt practices. And it could even be our environment in the translation of evidence, that especially that's coming through at such a fast, rapid pace uh, from COVID-19 uh, articles and research in the uh, task force itself. Um, the experience of translating, oh, um, it is hard. Obviously, the guidelines are there to shape and guide the broader principles um, that we feel, or the uh, evidence task force feels, uh, are going to lead to best outcomes for patients and service access and continual delivery. You do meet barriers. Um, you meet, that could be at the bedside with clinicians, that could be your own local environment. I don't know of any EDs that don't have these massive concrete pillars. Now, I understand it's vital to keep the floor above you, above you, but <laughs> trying to create um, appropriate social distancing, trying to create um, a way in which patients can still be um, you know we can still have good line of sight with our patients as well as being able to communicate uh, with them through closed doors or through uh, negative pressure rooms which aren't quiet um, you know are you know it is challenging but those guidelines service uh, you know uh, provide the ingredients and how we translate them well that's the senior leadership 
team's job. I don't take a top-down approach. I very much like working in a collaborative fashion because a decision at one level may impact on someone further down the chain or up the line. Um, so we get groups together ourselves, RNs, uh, clinical nurse specialists, we get doctors, we get physios all together because we still have to deliver high-quality, timely emergency care, irrespective of the day, time, place, or hour. Um, we also have to have contingency plans. Um, and again, hospitals, um, you know, it can be difficult to turn their policies around and retrain everyone to think differently about a specific patient group, such as those suspected of having COVID-19, um, as well as normal service operations. Um, so that takes a lot of leadership, negotiation and communication skills, as well as recognising everyone's anxiety that is around uh, this. Um, we have patients that we've not been able to bring in for their planned surgeries that you know are still going to need those uh, operations performed in a timely fashion. We've got people with degraded sight that still need their eye operations. And whilst they not, may not be critical or emergent, sort of uh, issues they still need to have access to service and be cared for afterwards and the ed stands as that front doorway to every speciality problem uh, and prank that's gone wrong um you know we stand there but we still have to provide a service i think that collaborative pro approach i'm not i know it's not unique to ed but i think eds do that really well in working with all people and realizing that it is a team that gets gets the job done. Um, I guess just going back to Sina, it obviously, like just listening to your talk and your involvement, it obviously occupies a large amount of your time and bandwidth. So I wonder if we could talk about the college just for a minute, just to mention a couple of roles, like you mentioned in the introduction that you're, you chair the professional standards and that you're the associate executive director. You're also the New South Wales branch president. And six years ago, you were voted the Australasian Emergency Nurse of the Year. And there's other countless subcommittees that you're part of. And it's also, I think it's fair to say that not to mention every time Cliff or I often have a question about, oh, who do we talk to in Cena about this? The, your name probably comes back about 50 to 60% of the time. Um, can you tell us what Cena means to you and why it's so important to become a member? Oh, why, okay. why it's important for emergency nurses to become a member? So I'm going to wind the clock back. I've been a nurse now for nearly 20 years. Um, and thank you. I don't look it. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, I've been a, a nurse for 20 years and I was not trained in Australia. I was trained in England in the UK. And I remember vividly um, when I got my first job, uh, I was in traumatic brain injury, neuro rehab. Um, I was intensely interested in neurology and head injury and the recovery and rehabilitation from neurological disease as well as, um, you know, stroke, which is of major importance and focus uh, recently in Australia. But I remember coming onto the shop floor and yeah, I, I thought I was going to walk through these doors and suddenly know and learn everything and instantly and be able to have all the right answers. But the investment in education at that particular point is very different from Australia. You, you might have access to a clinical nurse educator or, or a nurse educator in your specialty. These individuals were quite distant uh, from the unit and may not have been specialised in the area that you were practising. And I started to realise I had a lot of gaps that I needed to fulfil. 
Cutting a long story short, I managed to get myself into doing my bachelor's of nursing honours um, and then eventually work my way forward to emigrating towards Australia. In that process, I transitioned into emergency nursing as an emergency nurse practitioner, where I uh, had that role for about six years. But even then I was thinking, well, how do I learn this, uh, this job? And again, taking up more qualifications, more qualifications. But the thing, it didn't twig, it didn't sort of um, click in my brain until I got got to Australia. And I think Australian nurses have a massive standard to be very proud of, emergency nurses more particularly, in that they have an ability to have impact and input into every aspect of every type of patient that comes through that department, from the minor injury to intubated, mechanically ventilated. In the UK, it's not like that. You would normally have an anaesthetist or an ICU nurse come down to help with a ventilated patient, but Australian emergency nurses, that's just another day on the block. And I started to remember, um, I've been kind of learning by being thrown in the deep end. I wonder what it would be like if there was a slow slope um, in some way, shape or form. And I began to question, um, well, what are the standards of practice? What are the thresholds? Where Where is this knowledge or education that I need? And I remember asking my first day in the resus area, I was looking at all this equipment and some of it was familiar, some of it wasn't. And I thought every cupboard was going to have a spider or a snake jump out of me at some particular point. Um, <laughs> and I suddenly realized that everyone was going, oh, if, you know, if you're here long enough, uh, they chuck you in. And I was going, oh, I wonder if we can make that better. I wonder if baptism of fire is not the only way into the resus nurse club. Um, and I started to explore, and that's when I identified and found Cena as a peak professional body in emergency nursing. And I started to get really interested about what this college was doing. And we didn't have this in the UK. And the more and more I got involved, and then suddenly I found myself filling out paperwork to be part of the branch committee. And I suddenly realized that there is this wealth of specialty knowledge um, practice and standards sitting here. And I wanted to bring that into my practice as well as my environment. Um, I got some great support from the branch committee members. And I think maybe by mistake, I got elected as president of New South Wales. But I've never stopped, you know, continually getting this high quality support. But then looking back at the profession thinking, there's so many more yards we can go with having a peak body to develop guidelines, to network through, to be that person at the table. Because I think even up until more recently, COVID has, again, taught us so much about the robustness of, of, of nursing and the um, resilience of the healthcare workforce, um, that if you're not at that table where decisions are made, where resources are allocated, where uh, best practice decisions are made, you're not being represented. Um, so I doubled my efforts and energies into the college um, and then found myself being elected to Associate Executive Director. And um, one of the key elements of my vision is to actually promulgate the aims and objectives of the college, which is to provide the base sort of benchmark of expert emergency nursing practice. Because I felt we have so many more nurses coming into the workforce. Um, the pre-registration training prepares you well for the differentiated patient, but the very nature of the emergency nurse is to be in the undifferentiated situation, context, and the patient themselves. Um, and there's a great wealth of skills there. And I often think, um, and even thinking about some of the sort of political messages around nurses, we're not all the same. We have unique skill sets, we have unique knowledge sets, we have unique expertise. And my concern is that the emergency nursing skill set, knowledge and expertise 
will be underrepresented if if there is not a peak body there to champion that. Um, it takes on average about four to five years to train and consolidate um, and a new entry nurse into emergency nursing because of the breadth of our skills and the college to me provided the engine to drive that. So it is really important that people consider becoming members of the college. Um, there are many aspects of the college that people might find of interest in themselves, whether it's looking at education, whether it's looking at developing specialist uh, practice guidelines, whether it's looking at you know developing the next education strategy, or whether we look at nationally standardizing triage training. There is a lot for everyone to get involved in. Um, so if you're interested, you can contact your local branch. Now, details are actually on CNO uh, org.au um, twitter us or give us a facebook message and we can put you in contact uh, with individuals who can help you take that next step i like your analogy of being thrown in the deep end i've often said that my career i've often been dragged up because <laughs> i'm only here like because i can swim because <laughs> <laughs> i often i started with a with a group of nurses <clears throat> and they kind of led the way and i kind of just oh well they've done it i should probably do that now i should probably do that now until i got to a certain point and then became more proactive i couldn't agree more actually... the college i think it's no you go i think that you got the the perfect you know, you vision yourself about yes I think people opened the door and I just fell through um yeah. and then suddenly I've, I've got so far and I look behind and going okay so now people are following me <laughs> but yeah I think every every growth you know is reliant upon the shoulders of the people that went before um, and I'm very privileged to have met quite a few of those and I will never stand above them because to me they're my uh, people that sort of are my litmus test of which direction I should be going If you haven't got a seat at the table, you've got no voice. And honestly, that is so true because you can't actually sit there and grumble about um, our our practice and how how our um, models of care work and our governance works you just can't do it unless you're prepared to to have a voice in that and that that can be as little mm. as joining the the college and and voting you know in in <coughs> yeah. our in our annual in our uh in our AGM each year or 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 actually you know thrusting yourself full on or you can take baby steps all the way so yeah couldn't agree more there it's it is it 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 it, it actually does annoy me a little when people grumble about the state of things and yet aren't actually prepared to do a lot but that said i do come back to our initial question is how do you fit all of that in? And that that's hard. I get that. I completely get it. When you come home from a couple of night duties in a row, the last, in a row, the last thing you want to do is start looking over some policies and procedures so and my, practice standards. My average week um, actually begins on Friday. I get a data packet uh, of documents and uh, policies to be reviewed and uh, studies that have been synthesized that I have to review over the weekend. And then we have the first meeting at 6 p.m. on a Monday, uh, followed by the executive senior meeting. Um, and now I am the representative on the Sepsis Network uh, Guideline Leadership Group. Um, and it's not just me. There are many other uh, senior members. We have a pediatric specialist emergency nurse who's championing um, pediatric sepsis. But yeah, you do have to factor these things in. Um, and occasionally I do have to apologize at least maybe once a week. <laughs> <laughs> 
once a week, that's nothing. I mean, um, <laughs> some just came to me. Um, I noticed there was a, an expression of interest for membership on the task force recently. Did you want mm. to spruik that, or has that already been filled? Um, that oh, that was for the infection prevention control working group. Um, and that has been closed right. and filled okay. now. Um, yes, and we, we I think we got over 50 people from the college that actually expressed an interest to join that specialist nice. work uh, for uh, working group. It was good. Fantastic. We might spin away from being um, religious about the college just for a minute. And um, most people don't know that also thrown into all of this, you're also quite a um, prolific researcher and publisher, um, not to mention that you're currently doing a PhD as well, <laughs> okay? So just before you answer that question, I'll let that sit with the listeners for a sec about the amount of workload you've got on. But you you recently completed and published a national survey examining um, what we know about pain assessment and management um, in Australian emergency. Um, can you tell us about the study and the outcomes that came out of that? Sure. So this study was focusing on um, the capacity of emergency nurses to provide uh, pain relief to patients who present to ED. And this was built around a unifying concept, which is that nurses are the first and primary contact point for every patient. It doesn't matter what speciality you're in. You're the one that's most present. You're the one that's continuing to observe and to provide guidance to the patient as well as administer therapies. Um, so I wanted to look at the emergency nursing role in this. Um, so we did a Delphi and we had uh, over 14 specialists join us on that. This was a real-time Delphi because um, as you've already alluded to my workload, I ain't got time to wait around three months to get a, um, a iterative survey done through 14 people, uh, plus or minus any other life-changing issues that seem to crop up uh, this year in 2020. So real-time is um, you have a month to access one survey and you can continually alter, change, upvote, um, provide input to different questions. And at the end of it, that is your survey. That's the survey that's going to be released uh, into uh, the uh, uh, ether of, of Australia. So we sent this out uh, and we coincided it with Emergency Nursing Week because we wanted to give really special focus to the roles that emergency nurses undertake and their capacity to have significant impact on the patient. Um, so we did this uh, using social media. We did this via the college's membership database. We also did this with me standing outside the main doors to the main hall at the conference, and you couldn't get out unless you took one of my <laughs> postcards. Um, but we got over, just over 450 uh, responses, and over 40% were from college members, which was fantastic to see. And what we started to realise when we examined the findings was that... Um, one in three emergency nurses could, by using a policy or standing order, provide analgesia to patients on uh, presenting to the ED. Most were non-opiates, uh, so paracetamols and neurofens. However, some did include nitrous oxide all the way up to intranasal fentanyl. 
Um, we found that nurses felt comfortable and confident in using this uh, array of analgesics to bring relief to patients. We also found them reporting, observing positive impacts on patients in the sense of um, reducing frustration and aggression uh, towards healthcare staff. We found a um, small risk profile. They um, had guesstimated about less than 5% of the time they had observed an adverse event, and this was mostly um, low blood pressure, which could be attributed to morphine and fentanyl. Uh, we found that emergency nurses in their training to use um, standing orders or to administer uh, analgesia without um, uh, you know, a physician having to primarily write that up or, and see the patient, um, that training varied. And this was the other thing that I was scratching my head about. You know, emergency nurses have such a specialty uh, uh, area, theatre to be in. Um, but it ranged from no training at all uh, through to read a policy, do a learning package um, or attend uh, some sort of workshop. And I think, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we stop reinventing the wheel? And if we have a nurse in Bundy, uh, Bundaberg, trained in one, dire- in one particular way, that they could go all the way to Northern Territory and that still be accepted. So it just started to spring up ideas about what can we do to, to bring all this individual um, practice up to a national level? So that was one idea for the bank, uh, to sort of put that in there. We found that nurses uh, were using a variety of tools. Now, you know, we conversationally might interact with patients, say, how are you doing? How's the pain? Is it bad? We might use, you know, use sort of a narrative scale. We might even use a zero to 10. But what we did notice in the survey was that groups who potentially may be nonverbal, those with advanced dementia, those with um, intubated and mechanically ventilated, or those uh, non-English speaking, um, culturally diverse backgrounds may not be receiving adequate assessment for their pain and may therefore not be receiving adequate pain relief. Um, when we looked at uh, individual nurses' curriculums that they had learnt how to deliver analgesia uh, from, um, there was nothing in there for the uh, older patients, the patient with dementia, the patient with communication difficulties or the patient who was intubated and ventilated. And I felt that that group was something that was, you know, needed attention because there are tools available that can assist in those zones that are nonverbal pain assessment tools. Um, and there's no reason why nurses cannot extend delivering timely analgesia into that space. Uh, on average, an emergency nurse will have total carriage of a um imminently unwell patient for up to 45 minutes by themselves. We have evidence from rural and remote settings where the majority of a 60% of care is delivered by the nurse without supervision, direct supervision of a, of a physician with no negative outcomes. So again, there's no reason not to pose that question, could we, and what would the impact be? So that national survey taught us a lot that by and large, Nurse initiate analgesia is safe, that they can deliver it in a timely fashion. However, there might be some variances in the types and groups of patients that that might uh, include. But education, again, has come up as can we stop reinventing the wheel? Can we look at a centralized pathway that if we could just agree, here's the pain knowledge, here is the pain assessment tools. Now, at your local workplace, you may have, you know, use these items but you've all been trained the same to do this. Um, I don't see anybody running around teaching people different bandaging techniques. I think we've all particularly just learned the one, uh, wrap it, stick it, hold it and run away. Um, you know, I think we can do this and bring it to a standardized uh, level.
Yeah, uh, it's all very well and good for you guys up there in New South Wales saying have nice standards across all different healthcare networks. Not not quite as easy for us down here. But I I have been guilty of um, having very little else to go on other than what I think would be a good idea, especially around people who are mechanically vent- ventilated. Um, I always guess it's got to be painful, right? Especially if you've had a, a bleed in your head or something like that, there must be some pain involved there. But it's it's very much based on my own, you know, intuition, um, having some kind of standardised uh, uh, assessment process and, and way to do that would be awesome. We, um, as part of the survey, we, we asked nurses or respond, uh, participants to give us, out of 10, 0 to 10, how painful 26 common care procedures would be if you were this critically ill patient. Um, the average uh, pain uh, was 7 out of 10, and the procedure that copped the most pain or perceived amount of pain was chest drain insertion. Um, NG came far further down the list with intubation being somewhere in the middle, average about five to six out of 10 pain. Um, when we then started to contrast this to patients' reports of pain, it does appear that maybe we've been underestimating um, the likelihood of the degree of pain intensity that patients are going through, which then may impact on our decisions as to what we do or don't do. So it was quite interesting to see that perspective. Interesting too, like, is it, doesn't research show that if there's a pain score done, then usually they get adequate pain relief as well. So that's the, kind of like the first hurdle is ensuring that there's a pain score done. So yep. if we're not using an appropriate tool, then that's a major barrier. Yeah. Cool. Um, whenever ED nurses get together, Wayne, um, with their colleagues from different departments, they often have a, they often compare what they are challenged by at the moment. Um, I think you guys were talking about it before I came on this morning about, you know, challenges that they were facing in our ED departments. What are the main challenges in your ED world at the moment? Um, okay, I have three. I'm sure there's more, but I have three at the moment. Um, I think first and foremost, um, vulnerable patient populations. And the one that I'm challenged with at the moment, and we are beginning to unpack is suicidal ideation and self-harm um, and ensuring uh, rapid access and follow-up um, to prevent that suicide. I mean, fully on board with the New South Wales uh, target of towards zero suicide. Um, we are seeing this occur in younger patient groups as well as over 65-year-olds uh, for a variety of reasons. And one of those is social disconnectedness, aka loneliness. Uh, we're also seeing this in groups that don't have access uh, to healthcare. So that's one of the things that we're challenged with at the moment is how best to um, provide services and access and follow up for this group because EDs are typically the primary point of contact for this group and even for after hours uh, psychiatric care. Uh, mental health care, EDs are, are that sort of spot. We then looked across the state and we can see patients being held in EDs for extensive periods of time before they get access to that mental health bed. And some of those patients have to be flown from one ED to another, uh, which you know impacts on their welfare. But also it's something that's really unique to Australia, the geography, the landmass of Australia, and getting people from what seems to be just 
down the road and across the, uh, over the other side of the hill to what can actually you know, be over a 200, 400, 500k journey to an acute mental health facility. So that's one of them. The second one, and this one again, is, is of equal challenge, and that is access block and um, delays in accessing care. It's not gone away. I know communities responded uh, amazingly well with accessing other care uh, services for their symptoms. Um, EDs were safe to come to, and we did see people probably stay a little bit too long at home before realizing that they uh, were deteriorating and actually needed emergency care services. Um, but we're already starting to see alarm bells going off with ramping, uh, with access block, and patients deteriorating in non clinical spaces. Um, this is very challenging because it's not just you know, ED. We, we often tend to be, you know, seem to be the, the bottleneck and the emergency care or emergency treatment performance or need to target, whichever one you've currently got, isn't ED centric. It's actually a whole of organisation and it's whole of system and whole of government as well. And SENA sits in these spaces um, to help look at how resources can be built. Can we look at getting access to different services? Um, you know, so that the more critical patients go through to ED and the less critical ones can still access that same quality healthcare, but in a different way, in a different fashion. Um, the third one, um, uh, this is a bit of a personal one, is men in nursing. I know we sit here, we're all three of us, but um, men in nursing is something that I've, I've often felt is, is a challenging area. Nursing is for everyone. It's not a... a a discipline or an art or a science, whichever sort of angle you come from, it's not just for one gender and not the other. There is so much that uh, men can contribute in the care of patients, um, as well as uh, in that sort of um, community of, of care. So yes, I'd like to see more men in nursing if possible, um, because it is something for everyone here. So you think the your challenge is, is that actually there's just not enough men? No. Well, um, you think we could do about that? Um, I think advertising nursing as a, a fulfilling career more broadly, and I'm, I'm not pointing blame, I don't think there's a particular advert, and trust me, I ain't it. Uh, I don't think there's a particular advert that needs to be run uh, or anything like that. But in terms of diverse opportunity, nursing has it. Uh, into mm. its fullest. And I have noticed a decreasing number of uh, male student nurses as part of cohorts and groups um, coming through as students. Um, I'm sort of scratching my head as to why this is. Um, and I think that needs to be explored because it also ties in with the future of the nursing workforce. You know, we are going to face a shortfall uh, over the next uh, 10 years. And I actually think that shortfall is probably going to come a lot earlier because of the impact, one, because of the massive fires that happen, and two, because of COVID and the disruption to the economy and everything else has come through. So yes, I'd like to see more men enter into nursing and, and emergency nursing, of course. Um, but I think this is going to back on to that whole of workforce issue, uh, which is that we are going to have a shortfall soon. Um, and it's going to be very difficult to ensure that quality, safety and consistency is there in what we do at such vulnerable times in the ED. Mm. Sorry, John, did you have a question there? 
I was just going to say, it's interesting that like last year, the Department of the Chief Nurse did that review in nursing education. And one of the uh, items for review was to look at men in nursing or to increase the number of men in nursing. And I've just been trying to rack my brains. What were the outcomes of that? I read it a few, I've read it a few months ago and I can't remember. Um, so anyway, it doesn't really add to the conversation. <laughs> so the question, how do we improve the number of men? I need to go back and look at it. Okay. Cool. Thanks, Wayne. Yeah. Go so on. come on, fellas. Join us. It's a, a, an absolutely amazing and rewarding and such broad scope for different avenues mm. that you can go down in. Um, yes. I don't want to finish. We don't want to finish on a low note of the challenges. Um, I'd like to know, is there anything in your ED world um, recently that's made you happy or proud or really encouraged by what's going on? Um, so I was fortunate to, obviously the team that I work with, we do a nurse, uh, sorry, a year review where we get all the pictures, all the social media posts that are appropriate. And we look back on all the many, many things that we've done in the, in the department. And then we blend that with other EDs, um, because a lot goes on between those doors. Uh, it's a world that, you know, most people don't want to see the inside of. A uh, few are blessed to see and work inside there and to make life uh, changing uh, decisions and actions. Um, so we started to compile that for this year. Now, I know 2020, don't want to finish on a low. And it has been that year that we probably want to forget, but it is the international year of the nurse and midwife. And I know the impact of COVID has hurt more people than I could count and more deeply than I could know. But it was a mirror to the healthcare profession and to emergency nursing to show what camaraderie and what sort of energy and ingenuity that we could come together with to outsmart and beat something that, you know, was threatening communities in more ways than just health um you know we're shutting down of businesses and such like so sitting back and looking back at all those photographs yes we tore our ed apart we put false walls up i think everyone else did we got special curtains um we made markings on the floor we got doctors hand hygiene up as high as it ever possibly has ever been <laughs> um we ran out of alcohol hand gel um suddenly cleaning probes of ultrasound machines was important you know we went through all of this um, but we did it together, and I think that's an amazing, amazing energy, an amazing sort of vision that I, you know, I'm very cherished and blessed to have been part of. I've seen people step up to the plate, learn new skills, um, persevere with challenges in a way that I don't think I've ever seen in the last sort of twenty years of my career, um, and it's been a very galvanizing. Uh, sort of reflection to see and I am sure this is visible everywhere else um, you know I've, mm. been, I've had a privilege of seeing multiple EDs as I'm sort of whizzing around New South Wales but also across the state lines when it was permissible um, and yeah imagine that we just get the job done and we make it look good when we do it <laughs> um, so um, you know it's an amazing thing I think to see people on the other side now I do know that people have been affected this very deeply um, but the other thing that I have seen is communities of nurses coming together I know that we've lost nurses uh, through this but the community has come together to help everyone out and even the community around us not alone the nursing community have come together to help um, so yes, it made me very proud to turn up to work and it seems even prouder to see these memories that are there. 
as a, and a testament to what we can achieve when we are stubborn and single-minded and focused on an issue that we want to beat. Not to say that emergency nurses are not competitive whatsoever. <laughs> Such valid things to be proud of. Thanks so much, mm. Wayne. It's been uh, amazing. And I think we've only scratched the surface of what we could talk to. I do know we're getting you back in a few months to talk about some other stuff mm -hmm. um, that we'll announce relatively soon. But for the meantime, thanks so much, Wayne Varndale. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thanks, you very much Thanks for, for squeezing everything into your busy life. <laughs> it's greatly appreciated. Thank you for setting the bar really high. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and The Millions. Um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message, or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life.